From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zaro, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show with our favorite ally and activist, Josh Levs, on our collective efforts to build a safer, more inclusive workplace for everyone, particularly at the end of what's been a rather extraordinary year. 27 began with women, between 3 and 4 million women and men, marching in hundreds, over 500 cities worldwide, protesting Trump's inauguration. It was a collective sign of our rage and purpose that we all hoped was going to mobilize activism long after the sun set on January 21st. While the new administration quickly went to work to curtail many of the rights that we marched to protect, we saw early signs of change. Women started to run for local office around the countries in numbers never seen before. The New York Times created a new position for longtime editor Susan Shira as their very first gender beat reporter, and then followed with the appointment of the extraordinary Jessica Bennett as their very first gender editor. Not long afterwards, that same paper, and you tell me if you think it was a coincidence, and The New Yorker exposed Harvey Weinstein. This outing of male power gone awry was followed by the unbelievably cathartic and sympathetic cry of hashtag MeToo, which made real for millions of people how unbelievably ubiquitous sexual harassment really is and gave women and men from Hollywood to Washington the courage and support to speak out. This has resulted in the extraordinary sea change, as Jessica noted, where powerful men are falling like dominoes and vulnerable women are actually being believed. The greatest test of this new reality was actually in Alabama yesterday, where to the amazement of all of us, women's voices and a stellar voter turnout defeated a Republican running for Senate for the first time in Alabama in over 20 years. So given that the last time Josh Lev was on the show, it was post-election, and we were talking with Jessica Bennett about how concerned we were. Would our activism be sustained? How could we mobilize it? How could we make our voices heard? I couldn't be more thrilled to have him join us today. For those of you who don't know him, Josh Lebs was declared a global champion of gender equality by the UN and noted by the Financial Times as one of their top 10 male feminists. Why? Well, Josh was a former CNN and NPR journalist, the leading gloating, and is now the leading global expert on issues facing modern fathers in the workplace. He's the author of the award-winning book, All In, How Our Work First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Can Fix It Together. He stepped into a global spotlight by taking legal action against Time Warner, CNN's parent company, for fair parental leave so he could care for his um, preemie daughter and his wife, who was on bed rest in the last stage of her pregnancy. Thanks to Josh's activism, the company ultimately embraced his call, revolutionized its policy to make it better for moms, dads, and the families that they were building together. As a journalist, Josh has received many of the highest honors in his field, including six Peabody Awards, two Edward R. Murrow Awards, and awards from the AP, the Society of Professional Journalists, and the National Association of Black Journalists. He now works with corporations, organizations, universities, and more to build policies that support men as equal caregivers, which is crucial to ensuring equal career opportunities for women. And he's not only one of my absolutely favorite guests, but a shining role model for men and boys everywhere. So with that, I want to welcome Josh. Josh, back to Women at Work. 
Oh, my goodness. If only everybody could see me blushing right now. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. As you know, I've said this before. I'll say it again. You're one of my absolute favorite radio hosts in the world. And we got a lot to talk about. So Don't do we? Oh, my God. So, Josh, when you and I talked yesterday, we did not think this election was going to turn out the way that it did. Oh, yeah. Full disclosure, I was like, we will almost surely be, be lamenting what happened in Alabama. Um, and, you know, just say, listen, no, I'm, I'm in Atlanta. I'm based in Atlanta. So Alabama is just, you know, an hour and a half that way, the way I'm pointing right now. <laughs> They're I, I your neighbors. Like, yeah, my neighbors. I go there for events. I, I work in businesses there. I do, and I, I have felt for the last month that I could just feel the air coming from Alabama. Um, so, you know, look, it, it is great what ends up happening there, and we can break this down. And I, I also think it's really important to recognize um, – that it was incredibly close. It's a reminder that every vote counts, that every yes. person counts. And really, in the end, you know, white women voted for more. So this was really about um, largely driven by black people, black men and women, especially black women who showed up in larger numbers. And uh, that says a lot about the equality that you know, people all over this country are fighting for now. So how much of the outcome do you attribute to really um, effective voter turnout systems? Um, Ultimately, all of it. In the end, that's what it always comes down to, voter turnout. Now, when you talk about voter turnout, you have to uh, factor in that there are suppression efforts that are going on around the country, and the GOP has been pushing that, you know, with with obscure demands that make no sense. Uh, So sometimes it's really not as simple as someone just showing up because they do show up and they cannot vote. But um, turnout is, in the end, what it all comes down to. And this is why it's the same thing as as when Trump got elected. I I always say, look, when people try to blame Hillary for Trump's victory, it doesn't matter that she was an imperfect candidate. Everyone's an imperfect candidate. What matters is, in the end, you take responsibility for your own actions, and the people who took the actions are the voters. And so it's up to voters to show up. And I heard the stats this morning on NCR that, Um, It was something like 40 percent turnout, which is almost unheard of for an election at this stage. Mm -hmm. So turnout is is everything. And if they got constituencies to turn out who would vote for Jones was the key. And how much of that do you attribute to the politics of the Senate and the way that decisions are being made in the country as a whole? And how much of it was about those women's voices? Right. Um, Well, you know, let's break down the steps that the women's voices took. There's been this real blame the messenger system when it comes to women speaking out. But if you look at women who described what he had done when they were teenagers, um, women around this country, it's, it's part of this movement that's been happening. They are starting to speak out about what they've been through. And then the media reports on it, and then people say, oh, it's fake news, fake media, you know, the Trumpets. That's what they claim, whereas it's, it's literally the modern version of attack the messenger. These right. women chose this moment to come forward. The media is reporting it. Um, and you can call the messenger a liar. But so I know that their message did help get through. And I know that there is also, if you look what happened recently in Virginia, um, there is a, a rising tide against the GOP. Um, and even within the GOP against Trump, which happened in both Virginia and in Alabama, it was the candidates that he had most wanted weren't the ones who were ultimately elected. So I think the voices of women uh, are making a very big difference. And I think dissatisfaction with Senate with the Senate is a part of that. People seem to see a Republican-run Senate that is not taking these situations and this treatment of women seriously. Is there a Venn diagram, though, in the area of even 
so there are the women who are speaking out and the women who are listening to them. But there are also men who are listening to them. And it, it seems to me like some of those men crossed party lines in this case. They did. And that's important to recognize, too. You know, these cultural movements uh, sometimes can happen very quickly. That's what we've seen over recent, uh, especially the last 10 years, certain social movements. Um, but then among some groups, it takes time. And it does seem that little by little, there are more men who are realizing the seriousness of this. So, yes, I mean, from the breakdowns that I've seen in Alabama, it is true that there was a surprising number, to many people surprising, of men who did vote for Jones. And so what uh, the, the more team thought they had a lock on, uh, they didn't. So there are more men who are becoming more and more receptive to these. And it's getting to the point where so many women are speaking out that pretty soon no person is going to be more than six degrees of separation away from a woman who describes her own experience. And even if you look at Cosby, right, there were people who loved Cosby and continue to believe him despite all these women coming forward until someone they knew or someone they knew who knew someone um, explained what had happened to her. And suddenly you start to realize it. And so this is why there's so much power in women speaking out, because eventually for more and more people, it will strike home. One of the things, when you bring up Cosby, it's particularly relevant because we're here in Philadelphia, and Cosby has been a local hero to millions of people for decades, like now for a couple of generations. And um, I think it was Savannah Guthrie also expressed this sadness, the reckoning, when it is in within, when it's within your six degrees of separation, when it's up close, when it's somebody you loved or cherished or admired. Um, in my case, Charlie Rose, Garrison Keillor. Um, didn't know them personally, but they were some of my heroes. How are how do we help people rectify that change in our perception of people that we formerly admired? I think step number one, that we have to do it in a way that gets us the reality of it. Uh, unfortunately, there's this popular image now that's taking off in which, you know, like that idiotic thing that we've talked about in the past where Trump's the locker room talk. Right. There are people who think that guys secretly, like, have our these conversations in which we say to each other, oh, listen to how I raped this girl, ha, 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 um, as though, like, that's a normal kind of, of conversation. Uh, it reminds me of this very old get on Saturday Night Live where Eddie Murphy dressed up as a white guy and got on a bus and when the other black guy stepped off the bus all of a sudden they like pulled out a disco ball and they were like serving hors d'oeuvres and stuff and <laughs> it was this suggestion that when you don't know a black person is there you're going to get all racist and do all these things and, and so here people have this idea and that idea is false and it's important to understand it that these men who are exhibiting these horrific behaviors are not going around generally telling people and showing off about it they're doing it in the shadows. And this is why there have been far too many men who have been wary of believing women. Because they're like, I know this guy, he would never do that. He's my friend, he would never do that. Because to these guys, they truly believe he would never do that. And that's what's so important to understand, that these behaviors are taking place in the shadows. And what we're seeing now is that when there are multiple women who come forward bravely with serious allegations. You have to take them seriously, and you have to accept the possibility that you didn't fully know this guy and that no one, even his friends, really knew this. In order to, to, to be fair to both sides, you have to accept that both sides could be telling the truth. And when you open your mind to that, that's when you start to realize that you didn't know the dark side of this man. You didn't know what he was doing. 
And if, uh, if you did, you had a responsibility to do something about it long ago. But in most cases, you didn't. And that's what we have to start to accept, the dark side that comes out when people get all this power, especially. When, because this is helpful to also stop polarizing the genders and presuming that all men are committing harassment or all men are complicit. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's actually been, and I'm glad to be talking to you about this because it's such a sensitive area. So as you know, the first time I ever said in public that I was once sexually harassed by a woman was on your show. And then I, I didn't talk about it again until uh, a few months before Me Too, earlier this year, because when I heard Megyn Kelly, this is after mm-hmm. the whole Gretchen Carlson thing at Fox, and then I heard Megyn Kelly on the radio describing some of the reasons that she had not come forward at the time about Roger Ailes, and her language stunned me because it was exactly what I was facing in one of my early jobs, way before NPR or CNN, um, where I was sexually harassed by a woman. And so I wrote about it at the time, and the responses were great. And then after Me Too, there were a lot of people, even really, like lots of well-meaning women, who say that this is not the time for men to speak out, that men should not be speaking out if they experienced this. Um, and then they started to be accepting of men speaking out if they experienced sexual harassment, but only if the perpetrator was a man. And there still isn't really a place in this dialogue to talk when the perpetrator was a woman. And in a way, I get that, because this is such a precious moment to understand what women go through. And even having experienced sexual harassment, I know that it's nothing like what women go through. I'm not saying it's the same thing. But what you're asking about now gets to the heart of this, that we can't start a gender war because it will be useless and get us nowhere. And what we have to do is drop the stigmas and all come together and talk about the truth. And to me, that is a lesson of Alabama, that this wasn't what some people say, oh, we need more women leaders. Yeah, we need more women leaders, absolutely. But, but the majority of white women voted for more, and black men showed up and voted against him. So what this is about is everyone who wants to stand up for truth and equality joining on one team and doing that together. So, Josh, you talk to groups all the time. And I'm guessing how much, what percentage of your audiences are male versus female? Well, I get invited by businesses all over the world to speak, and it's almost always the women's organizations that bring me in. And they often bring me in, in part because they know that men as allies is that this is such a crucial idea, and because word of mouth, they've heard what I offer. Um, but also because they have, they are the places inside these businesses that are doing the most to work on, on gender equality. Mm-hmm. But what happens is when they announce that I'm coming, there are a lot of guys who show up, and they always get more guys to show up than they've ever had before. Because a lot of people see me as this unicorn. You know, who's this guy from CNN who works with desert hall? And then when I get them, I tell them my story. It becomes the first time that they've ever opened up, that men have ever opened up about their struggles with work-life balance, their struggles to be equal caregivers, that the, the stigmas and expectations on men are terrible for women in the workplace. And now, when I go into these businesses, these guys open up, and it becomes the first time that we have this really cross-gender dialogue about what we can all do together on one team. 
which is critical. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with the amazing Josh Levs, who's a gender equality activist, amongst many other things. If you'd like to join in the conversations, if you're one of those men who would like to talk to Josh, even though it's Women at Work that put him on the air, give us a call. We'd really love to hear your voice. Um, we're at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And if you're at a computer and you can't really call because you know you're at work doing this, you can give Patty get Patty moving. She's answering emails at Business Radio at SiriusXM.com. She'll open up your message and we'll get you on the air. Um, so, Josh, one of the things that's really um, important here is figuring out how we step away from this polarization and how we talk to each other about changing the culture of our communities and our workplaces. Right. How, yeah. how do we start that process? Mm. This is where um, the two halves of what I am come together because there's this, uh, the messaging, the advocacy, but it's all grounded in having spent all these years at CNN as a fact checker and learning how even most journalists don't know a lot about fact checking, so they end up quoting university studies that are wrong. So <laughs> when you say, where do we start? This is the good news. We start with the facts. And we have to have the whole set of facts and understand, in order to understand what's going on. And, and so I'm always hearing, I just got back from London working with another company, but I'm always hearing from groups saying, we really want to get men as allies in the effort. Um, but they, they, they say, but all these men have filled out a survey saying they want gender equality, but they've never done anything about it. And then their reaction is, tit, 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 those bad men not doing anything about it. And then I say, well, have you ever told them what they could do? Like, what? what? So what we need to do is start off with a set of facts about what's really holding us back. And that's why when I wrote this stuff in my book, it originally it was what I started on air at CNN. And when I would report facts about what's going on with dads in the workplace, how it's so hard for a man to get paternity leave to care for his kid. So women end up taking all the time that's available to either of them. That hurts women's careers. Or how if a man so much as talks about being a caregiver or if he has uh, a need for flexible schedule and just talks about it, he gets punished and can lose his job and the family needs the money. And so people have never heard this before. Um, and when you come to understand that, you come to see that these madman structures are hurting men and women because, you know, these days that men are even more likely than women in this country to switch jobs or careers to have more time with their kids. But no one knows it because men aren't telling their jobs that that's why they leave. They're not explaining it. We're not stating it in public because of the stigmas. So the starting point to build alliances is to understand that the message to men cannot be, come on, support women already. I mean, yes, if you're you know, one of the chauvinist idiots or someone who's going around like, harassing women or mistreating them, you've got to cut that out. But in order to fix the structures, we have to understand that there are ways that men are pinned by the same backward ways of thinking about gender, and that when we tackle them together, when we start having open dialogue in our workplaces about work-life balance as though it's an actual equal gender-neutral issue, that's when you start to make real change. Yeah, well, because actually this issue of leave is surprisingly powerful in its ripple effect within the workplace. You know, as we've talked about before, when if men can get the same amount of time as women— and the culture encourages them to do so, does not penalize the men or the women for taking flex time or family leave time, then you start to create a more equal playing field about advancement. Yes? Exactly. I mean, 
you know, the short version of my legal case, for those who don't know, in fact, when I was at CNN and Tom Warner, the, the policy was that anybody could get paid weeks to care for their new kid except the biological father. And, and, and it's as ridiculous as it sounds, and they ended up changing it after all the attention. Uh, but there are still a lot of places out there like that. And I'm constantly being told by men. My boss, told, a guy told me this not long ago, uh, this lawyer at a law firm, he said, my boss told me, well, we have six weeks of paternity leave, but you're not really allowed to use it. That's the norm. That's what guys are told all the time. So from the moment that they become fathers for the first time, they are told, because you are a man, your career hangs in the balance if you try to do any of the things that a woman would do to go care for her kids. Um, and after my legal case, I should emphasize, the U.S. government, this was under Obama, fortunately, back then, the EEOC sent out guidance, although the EEOC is supposed to be independent. But anyway, the EEOC sent out guidance stating that um, workplaces have to clearly separate caregiving leave from medical recovery leave. So a woman gets time for physical recovery, absolutely, but caregiving leave has to be gender neutral. The problem is a lot of places don't have those policies, and very few places have the right policies and back them up with the cultures that really makes caregiving gender neutral. Right, and the culture is something that I think is particularly germane to this issue of harassment in the workplace and power, because we know that lots of companies have, fortunately, and I think thanks to a lot of the work that you've done, established policies that allow men to take time off, sometimes not as much as they should, but yet the culture doesn't encourage it. Yet I've heard from companies that celebrate their flex time for men not and that it doesn't have to be for childcare, that it can be for anything that's about personal development. And on one hand, that's really important and great. It doesn't um, over-benefit parents and penalize people who want to do things that are meaningful for their life that don't involve children. On the other hand, though, it still it raises for me this difference of is it culturally appropriate to, to go on flex time because you're training for a triathlon and you want to be an Ironman, yet you might not get the same support within the culture if what you're taking time off for is to do afternoon carpool. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, what I always say is that this whole concept is all about bringing your whole self to work and having a whole life outside of work. And this is also why, to their credit, HarperCollins is the one that came up with the, the subtitle of my book, it was our, our work-first culture. Mm-hmm. That, that core idea and all in about how the work-first culture is the wrong way to go, um, that's what you're talking about right now. We need to accept that every person has things that they love in their lives, and it could be someone they're caring for, not just a, a, a kid. It could be an elderly parent, a sick spouse, or, or it yourself. It can also be that you love volunteering. It can be that you love going kite surfing twice a week. It, you, you have the right to have a whole life outside of work, and the good news is that, look, I, I'm sure everyone who listens to your, to, to your show wants businesses to be successful, wants us to have a thriving economy. And the good news is that I can tell you this is, as a fact checker who knows what the fake <laughs> is. When you look around the world, the places that make sure there's actual greater gender equality, including in this respect, especially in this respect, making sure that men and women have equal opportunities to have lives and succeed in their jobs, those businesses always do better because they end up attracting and retaining the best minds for the right jobs, regardless of gender. So we know that that kind of balance is part of playing the long game for a business. It's a way of recruiting talent, keeping talent, and helping talent thrive. Where does power come into play in this? 
because it's so endemic to harassment and abuse. Because it's not really about sex. It's about power. It is. And if what we want to create is a more is an environment where everyone feels more respected. Mm-hmm. And in the big picture, men have had all the power in general in the American workplace for you know decades and decades and decades. Well, really, through American history. Um, and so it's totally sensible that a lot of women would feel and be well, disempowered compared to men in many ways. Um, the piece that I wrote for the Huffington Post after the Matt Lauer thing, it, it was it was all about this. It was all about power. It's the basic idea that what we're seeing here uh, is abuse of the power. And we know that absolute power can corrupt absolutely. So when you are a Harvey Weinstein and, you know, you have all these people who want to be famous actors and famous actresses and you're never going to be the one starring in the movies, but you have all these beautiful women who want things from you. It's sadly not shocking that someone would give into the worst sides of their nature, to some of those deadly sins even, and, and start to abuse power. And when we hear the stories about, in so many aspects of life, it, we're not just hearing about people who kind of did something to a random person in the workplace. We are hearing people who knew that this person wanted, even needed something from them. And this person was using that power to get what they want in return, which is illegal and disgusting, because what they wanted was this, you know, sense of sexual power, sense of sexual dominance, and sense of even sexual ownership. So having real conversations about that is important. But even more pragmatically, we need structures inside our companies in which people have safe avenues for reporting, because that's where power comes into play. You know, I've explained this. That was the Megyn Kelly thing that struck me when she said when Roger Ailes did this to her, she has no one to... There was no safe avenue. There was really nothing she could do. It, it, it was the same thing with me. I mean, when I started my career, when I had this first job, the woman that was very openly sexually harassing me, I'm describing the things she wanted to do to me, drawing pictures of me naked, all this stuff. She, she had a ton of power. It was up to her to determine whether I would get my big break or not. And there was no avenue for me to go address this that circumvented her power. It would have gone right to her. So because of those power dynamics, we have to ensure that all our workplaces establish safe avenues for reporting this in which the person who is alleged to have done the action does not have the power to punish you. Josh, in these situations, briefly, and then we're going to take a break and we'll come back and talk about more, but how much of the places where they're exerting power are around people who are commodities with value for them that they want to control so that they can leverage those commodities? Uh. Oh, wait, I lost you there. So, so I'm just trying to picture. So, that the beautiful women commodity. are right. the commodity, the helpful right. assistant, the commodity, the up yeah. and comer whose career I could make or break, a commodity. Yeah. Oh yeah. And oh, yeah. it's as much power for them to manipulate and control it is as it is to wield control over that person. And yes. I'm and I'm sense I think that that's also part of the problem here, and where we objectify these commodities. Yeah, exactly. You know. Uh, I, um, I, when I first started my career in reporting, I developed this line that I always say in my head, and I use it now when I train companies in unconscious bias, and that line is, the only things I know about this person are what I know about this person. And when I think that, it forces me to make sure I'm not adding like rate assumptions based on their race or what clothes they're wearing or what shoes they're wearing. Well, the same thing applies in this way, that 
you know, if you're looking at the assistant, if you're looking at someone who wants something from you, you might start grouping them together in your head. You know, I mean, imagine how many women probably voluntarily offered Harvey Weinstein whatever sex he wanted, right? And so you see another woman, after a while, you might just start, like, becoming so inherently misogynist that you group them all together. Like, oh, here's another woman that wants this for me, and if she doesn't, I'll make her want it, because they all do. But what you have to, but when you are forced to understand that every human being you deal with is an individual and that it is incumbent on you to show respect for that individual, then it becomes a lot harder to use those mental tricks to kind of trick yourself into justifying your own repugnant behaviors. <laughs> um, we're going to take a pause for a moment. Um, I'm Laura Zarrow. I'm here on Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. We're going to take a quick break, but if you want to give us a call at one eight four four wharton we'd love to know your hashtag MeToo story. So give us a call, and we'll be back shortly. one eight four four wharton Thanks. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today we're talking with Josh Levs about this extraordinary year we've had, this extraordinary moment in time, and how we close the gender gap in a really meaningful and authentic way. For those of you who don't know, Josh Levs has been declared a global champion of gender equality by the UN, noted by the Financial Times as one of their top 10 male feminists, an award-winning journalist who's worked at CNN and NPR. He is the leading global expert on issues facing modern fathers in the workplace. You should check out his fantastic book, All In, How Our Work-First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Can Fix It Together. So, Josh, welcome back to Women at Work. Hey, thank you. I love being here. (laughs) I love it when you're here, too. So before the break, we were getting into some complicated but interesting stuff, and I want to break it apart a little bit. So we were talking about um, the way that power corrupts the role and the role of bias in shaping the way that that power plays out. Could you talk to me a little bit more about how you think about that and where you see those two things coming together? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think having a, an understanding of your own power and the healthy ways to use it is something that we need in all workplaces. And if you think about it, you know, you go to work in, in any kind of company, when is the last time your company had a conversation with you about power and how to use your power? It actually almost never happened. And when <laughs> there isn't a conversation about it and when there's no training around it, around being conscious, you know, we... We talk about being conscious of our prejudices, forward-thinking companies are working on that. We talk about learning and development. We talk about a lot of workplace issues. We don't generally talk about workplace power. Unless and, you abuse yeah. it. Right. And, and, and in that case, you hear about it afterwards. And right. now, it's up to you to know not to abuse it. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious what the wrong things are to do, but... There, you know, if you want to have this conversation in general about power in the workplace, I'm certain that, that there are times that we all don't realize it. You know, you might be speaking to someone 
sometime and they really want to be a guest on your show and you don't know they want that and that puts you in some kind of power position. Or, you know, when I was walking through the, the CNN newsroom, if someone had an idea for me and if I would think, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe I don't like that idea, maybe it should go to someone else, like to me that wouldn't be a big deal conversation. But maybe to them it didn't occur to me, maybe it took them a lot of courage to walk up to me when I was on the air all the time and make that offer. So that kind of consciousness um, is something that we all, you know, beyond just the harassment, that we all need to be aware of. And we also need to understand um, that we have to stop making assumptions about each other. And that's where you get back into the, the harassment and how it plays together. So is that part of it about, so I just want to pause you for a second. So it's part of it that, A, we have to understand that we have power in ways we may not realize and that when we do have that power and when we realize it, we've got to learn how to be responsible with it. Yeah. Yes, we have to be responsible with it. Yes. And we have to understand uh, other people's responses to power, you know, the way that we are perceived and the way that other people feel about what their power is. You know, often workplace conflicts come from this. People have certain things that they want and need. They want their project to succeed. They want to get the next opportunity. They want to get the next promotion. Um, They want the bosses to like them. And if you are in a position like that, you are often thinking about who you answer to above you. You are worried about your bosses helping you, uh, liking you, uh, and probably not giving a lot of thought to the way that the people who are beneath you on the totem pole or who want something from you um, are responding to you and are feeling around you, and how even the slightest suggestion of anything could make them feel very, very legitimately uncomfortable. And so we need to be making this a regular part of what we talk about in the workplace. And this is where, you know, I I work with companies on all kinds of structures, uh, not just the safe avenues for reporting we discussed before, but also having an internal ombudsman, having uh, opportunities for people at all levels to run meetings, all of these different things that we can do that will allow everyone opportunities and for their voices to be heard and help them feel more comfortable explaining what they need what they're offering, and what you may have done that could be making things worse for them. It also seems like part of this is teaching people how to understand the limits of the power that's above them. And because it seems like in environments, like if you think about what's been going on in Hollywood and these different news organizations and media production companies, um, the people who held the power were acutely aware of how much power they had and they were consciously abusing it, which is part of what makes what they did so disgusting. Yeah. The challenge for the people underneath them is knowing when is that my boss and I've got to do what they ask me to do. And where's the boundary? Learning how to understand, like kids in the playground, when is it okay to say this is not okay? And in the workplace, where, how do we learn where to draw the line and when to ask for, se- for help without putting ourselves at risk? Right. So step one is to know your rights. What I found throughout my situation with my legal case uh, was that workers in this country don't know their rights. Workers don't even think they have rights. Mm-hmm. And I always tell people, even if you are in a quote-unquote right-to-work state, which I am in Georgia, uh, there are certain workplace protections that exist everywhere, and you have access to those protections. So this is something else that should be happening really in colleges and even in high schools, learning about the rights 
of workers in this country and why those rights are important and why they're there to be exercised and what to do if someone is violating one of them. Um, but then we have to get to the much stickier and much trickier part, which is what to do when the person who is abusing power is also the person who controls your big break. Yes. And this is why the only way to make this work really is to always, no matter who the person is, make sure there is a safe system for the person who is experiencing harassment to report it and get shifted to a different area, different company with the same opportunities so that they won't be punished. There's, I don't know, maybe you do, Laura, but I don't know any other way to fix that. No, I, even yeah. though I think that there's a whole list of things that unfortunately we have to become mindful of and conscious of. I'll give you a small example, which is how do we interact in physical space with each other? Um, yeah. I was on a plane this weekend um, and there was a man sitting in the seat between me and another, and a woman needed to sit down. I was on the aisle. He was between us. She needed to get to the window. He didn't want to get up to let her in. He wanted to make her climb over him. He yeah. didn't want me to get up. He wanted to climb over me. Yeah. Was he rude or gross? Either way, she very calmly and with tremendous poise said, no, would you please get up? I don't want to climb over you. Yeah. And my radar went off. So I said, no, I will get up. You can get up too. let her in and try to support her in that moment. But it made me it reminded me of all the small interactions in our environments where subtle things happen that can actually be quite potent. And one challenge is we don't want to presume the worst of everyone, but we also have to assert our right to our dignity in all cases. Yeah. And it can make yeah. interactions very awkward. And the situation you're describing is a good one to break down because you had seen this man walk. You know he's not, you know, incapable of <laughs> right. standing up, right? <laughs> right? So you know he has that ability, and you know that she and she verbalized it. And then did he get up? Did he grunt about it? Did he just do it? Um, he grunted at first, and then when uh, my voice joined hers, he cooperated. Yeah. And look, if there's anyone listening right now who thinks, who is concerned, which about technically a legitimate concern, the possibility of someone sometime making up a story, you know, claim, here's all I can tell you. If anyone, if anyone accused me of, of sexual harassment, I, I would not do what, you know, Fox and O'Reilly did, paying someone tens of millions of dollars and then claiming <laughs> right. that it's all fake. I would, I would scream from the rooftops. I, I would tell everyone everything I know, and it just states that this never, ever, ever happened. So to me, when I hear people have these worries or think, oh, you know, well, yes, it's true that we are at a time in which you, there can sometimes be this kind of lynch mob mentality, assuming someone's guilty of something. But the fact is, there is a way to handle it if you did not do this. And so in so many of these situations, what really happened is what this guy was doing to you on the plane times 10. Right. You know, this presumption that he can demand something that he will enjoy. And even in that moment, he had this power because she needed to get seated. And he misused that power. And there's no, there's, there's no accepting that. And you both did the right thing. Good for you. I would have applauded for you. <laughs> Why, thank you. And I also know that you would never have said, climb over me. <laughs> 
Right. Yeah. I know. And so, it, it, you know, and again, it comes down to like respect for people. Like first I would want to think, wait, is he, you know, in a wheelchair? Is there, is there any reason that he physically can't? Is there something going on here? But you already knew it wasn't the deal. So it really was just him being rude. And, you know, you won that dynamic. So that's also an example of um, a woman standing up with another woman. And, you know, there's power in numbers. And that's right. part of what we're seeing in Me Too is that, the more women speak out, the more other women are comfortable doing so. And recognizing that when women speak out, they are still, we are still incredibly vulnerable. That, um, and I want to give note to the fact that men are being harassed too. In some situations, they can be victimized. But as a whole, there's a different way that women get slut-shamed and accused of causing it, of bringing it on themselves, that they need the social support, which is why when women accuse their attackers, they're vulnerable again, all over again. Oh, I mean, this is where things come full circle to where we started, because I was genuinely scared for uh, child sex predator victims and pedophilia victims all over this country yesterday. Because if people see that you can come forward bravely about what someone did to you, and that person can still be elected to the freaking U.S. Senate, that is terrifying. Um, And as it is, we as a nation allow Donald Trump to become president, despite his long record of straight up sexual harassment, uh, talking in disgusting ways about the way he treats women, admitting the way he gropes at them, which is absolutely a form of assault, um, and has all these accusations of sexual assault and ultimately got more power than ever. So we could have gone the other way as a nation. We could have had so many people so afraid of the power of these men that they stopped saying it. But this is where the resistance has done something beautiful. It's been to swing the pendulum the other way, you know, saying, okay, so Donald Trump won, fine. You know what we're going to do? We're going to stand up, rise up against this culture of accepting that. And we're going to knock down every disgusting man who has misused his power in similar ways. And they're dropping like flies. And so that is a beautiful and positive and hopeful uh, phenomenon as we you know, move into the next year. <laughs> Absolutely. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Josh Levs, gender equality activist, champion of working dads. Um, if you want to join in the conversation, you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. We'd love to hear from you. You know, Josh, I'm really glad that we got to this point because one of the things that outraged me was that Somebody could be elected to the highest office in the land, to the most powerful seat in the the world in many cases, um, with this kind of known track record and that we have been mobilized into activism. Like Gloria Steinem said after the election, it, it was probably useful because it revealed the bigotry and bias that still exists. And we are seeing a sea change that's incredibly important. Talk to me about what Kristen Gillibrand is doing in the Senate right now and the role as a reporter. Help explain to us, how do you understand why she's speaking up and what the risks are that she's taking and what are the potential benefits? Yeah, well, um, I can start off by telling you that I'm on a working group through her office. Uh, we've been yeah, 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 yeah. She's she's been great and wonderful to me, very supportive of of the book, and and I'm very you know big fan of a lot of the good work that she's doing too. And um, I testified in Congress this past summer, pushing for paid family leave, and so uh, I, I have this working relationship 
you know, with her office and with her, which is, which is fantastic. Um, and she's being an important voice. I don't even know which aspect to focus on, except I can tell you that Trump's tweet about her was it yesterday or two yeah. days ago was, you know, so obviously misogynistic and obviously suggesting that she's a prostitute. Um, who wanted to prostitute herself to him in order to get money for her campaign years ago. I mean, the idea that he would even say that and think that and probably believe it because he is delusional and misogynist um, shows, you know, how twisted this is. And yet she is not backing down. And her response has, what I've seen, been pitch perfect. Her response has been, you will not stop me or other women from speaking out. I will continue to do so. And more and more people are being affected by that. And more and more people are having to, to speak out. You know, this might be interesting to you. In Atlanta, we just had a mayoral race, and it came down to two candidates. And one of them had to work really hard to make absolutely clear that despite her Republican history, she stood against Trump, stands against Trump, voted for Hillary, <laughs> even to win a mayoral race in one city down here in Atlanta. So what we are seeing, is a lot of people expecting good, legitimate representatives in this country, really from both parties, but the GOP is such a mess and it's become so Trumpist that they're expecting it more from Democrats to to stand up. Even though our ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, she spoke out. She said that that these women should be listened to. Absolutely. I have to look this back up, but as I recall, Nikki Haley was one of the people that was actually a, a pretty good Trump pick when he started. I think she had opposed a lot of things about him back during the race. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, once in a while, even a stock clock is right twice a day. You know, him having her at the U.N. <laughs> happens to be a, a pretty good thing. Uh, so, yeah, so she's speaking out, too. And more and more people will have to. And the lesson of Virginia and the lesson of Alabama uh, is that if you try doubling down on Trumpism, which is all about lies and mistreatment and tearing us apart as a country. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw Hillary recently uh, speak, and she said this. This is important to keep in mind, that, that the Trumpist philosophy really is about tearing Americans apart on everything, gender, race, everything. Um, the other side is about pulling us together and, and doing that through truth. So I think, you know, what we're seeing with Kirsten Gillibrand and others standing up, um, is that there are those who will support you. And increasingly, more and more Americans, I think, want that. Absolutely. So, Josh, I want to switch gears a little bit because, sure. you know, one of the things that's amazing about these women is that we have new role models for the next generation of women. Our girls are seeing women standing up. They're seeing women being heard um, in unprecedented ways. And even though a woman candidate lost the election, they still saw a viable candidate for the presidency of the United States. In an era where, and you've talked a lot, I've been quite touched about the different ways that whether it's on Twitter or LinkedIn or on Facebook and in the writing you do, you've talked about um, how to help men develop, how to to help men embrace the fullness of what it means to be a good man. Right. And what, what it means, how to understand masculinity in a new, more evolved way. Yeah. How do we help our boys see and understand the good role models that are out there? Um, first of all, through modeling it at home. You know, one fear I did not have for me and my children was that, which some people had, was that seeing Trump would make generations of boys uh, become more like bullies. Uh, because 
I know that dads are far more impactful, and I, like most American dads, am very involved in my kids' lives. Uh, my, but um, <laughs> then I did see Trump's speech to the Boy Scouts. Oh, my and God. And totally unhinged, what might possibly have been the worst moment of his presidency because he was given – you go ahead. I mean, I, I hear you jumping in. It, it, was, it was disgusting what he said that day. Yeah. Uh, and it spoke to these old ideas. I mean, he basically told these kids that success means having orgies on yachts. It, it's, it's what he believes, and it's so twisted. And in the Shakespearean tragedy that is his life, this is what happens when you only have toxic masculinity to believe in yourself based on and not real you know, confidence, real masculinity. So what we need to do is, as an entire society, all of us uh, empower and support uh, fathers and stop trashing them and stop dissing them and assuming <laughs> that they're bad. And the more you do that, the more you – this is also why pop culture images are so important and these mm-hmm. conversations are so important. Learning how well dads are doing and making sure that dads have time with their kids will lead – it always leads to more gender equality in the home. If you make sure – this is proven repeatedly. The guy has paternity leave of more than three weeks. If he gets opportunities to do caregiving. The kids grow up believing that mom is equally capable at work and dad's equally capable at home. Um, so there's that. And it's about modeling the behavior, not just talking about it, because, you know, as, as we know, kids respond to what actually is happening. So being that, fighting the good fight, and every man who is a part of that is leading to a, a better generation of kids. And so we've talked before about some of this, but I want to um, bring it back into the light for some of our listeners. You know, you've made a, a really important and beautiful case about the danger of the dumb dad, the dad as mm-hmm. buffoon. So in the same way that we don't want to um, vilify all men, we also want to recognize that fathers can be effective, that fathers are loving and tender and capable, and the responsibility that mothers have can be shared with them. And it's critically important that we send the fa- not just the fathers, but kids the message that fathers are competent and loving caregivers, and that that then shapes our notion of what they can be as men and partners, mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I mean, when I hear when I hear about these disgusting men and what they're doing in the workplace, it's you know, a new one every day. One of my first thoughts is always, what did his father teach him? Who raised what did them? His father, well, yeah, exactly. Who raised them? And and what did his father? What did his father teach him? And because you know, it, it might be easy to think, well, you know, if my mom knew about my behavior, she would hate me. But I'm a man, and this is what men do. But if you learn from your fathers that no, it's not, then it's just so much more likely that you wouldn't. And part of part of Trump's disgustingness comes from, you know, the, the, the tragic, from what I understand, uh, and bad lessons that he learned growing up about, you know, manliness and stuff. But um, I, I think that, you know, empowering the, the beauty of the, the positive messages is important and confronting the bad. And this is something else. You know, we, I, and I have a chapter about this, we don't talk about sex in America. We don't teach our kids what sex really is. And so much of what sex is ends up being, in their minds, what they see in, is, you know, images as they're growing up, videos, magazines, whatever, porn when they're older. Um, and that, the fact that sex happens in the shadows is another part of this problem here. Because we need to be able to talk about sex as a natural thing in which it is about uh, sharing a moment. And Between two equal power. partners, not right. one who is an object or a victim of the other. And that your manliness does not 
uh, ride upon whether you manage to dominate in, you know, in that respect and in sexual dynamics. And that's like just better and more fun and more powerful when there's a sense of equality about it that you're kind of jumping into the space together. You know, these things that have, uh, this is the power of information, the power of what mm-hmm. you do having a radio show. And uh, when we tar- start having real conversations about ethics and about actions and how those two things come together, then people have no choice but to confront reality and live according to it. And reality is <laughs> that when men and women are equal and deserve equal respect. Yes. And when they exhibit respect towards one another, everyone thrives in an entirely different way. Yeah. Including in our homes and in our workplaces. So, Josh, with the minute we have left, what's next for you? And if people want to read your book, see you speak, what's on the list? Sure. So um, they can follow all my stuff on my website, joshlevs.com. It's J-O-S-H-L-E-V-S. And uh, one next for me, I'm excited for 2018. You know, I'm working with a lot of businesses. I have events booked around the country and around the world into the spring, and I'm booking more. I write a lot, and I'm going to continue to write and speak out and be active. And in America, the next big push we have to show that we can keep this up uh, is a little less than a year from now, the 2018 midterms. And for this year, to, to keep the culture war moving forward is, is the key for me. You know, we had the chance to prove in 2017, and we did, that despite Trump's political election, we still control the culture. This is my hope when I talked to you a year ago, that mm-hmm. we'd be able to show that we still control the culture. We showed that in 2017, and now what we need to do is take that culture and move it further into the political arena in order to help make sure that we do get more women and more uh, equality-minded people in the halls of power and in our businesses, really everywhere, to turn that culture into structural change in America. Josh, you are an inspiration, an advocate. I love having you on the show. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. You can follow me at Laura Zarrow. Um, Special thank you to Josh Lev. I'd also like to thank my producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis, Jackie Gaffney, who supports me behind the scenes. If you want more of Women at Work, you can find us on SoundCloud.com backslash Women at Work. And, of course, all of Business Radio on businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu backslash best of. Thanks for listening, everyone, and have a fantastic new year. And I know we can make it. I know we can. I know done well. We can work it out. Oh, yes, we can. I know we can make it. If we want it, yes, we can. I know we can make it work. I know we can make it if we try. Oh, yes, we can.